Good morning. How great he is, and we gather this morning to celebrate the goodness and the greatness of our God. It's nice to have Sonny back, is it not? <laughs> Welcome home, Sonny. I don't see Sonny. She's probably online with Kihong. So thank you, Sonny, for what you do and how you help us enjoy the greatness of our God and see him on display. Well, this morning is the last message in this series of 40 Days of True Religion. We're going to look back at the journey we've been on, and we're going to tie it all together, if that's possible. I opened this series with this statement, not all religion is acceptable to God. You can spend your life being very religious, but end up wasting your time. You can deceive yourself but you cannot deceive God. So if you're going to go through the motions then of religion, then just go fishing, go bowling, go swimming, go to a football game. I didn't say anything. Those activities would have done you as much good as all your church attendance, your praying, your giving, you're fasting. Because if your heart is not fully engaged with God, it is simply religion. So we wanted to explore what God says about true religion, pure religion, not just religion. So where have we been? Well, we started in Luke 10 with the story of the Good Samaritan. It was a story that Jesus told to a lawyer who was a decent guy. He was very religious as far as he could be and as he could tell, but he wasn't really sure. He had some questions. He wanted to make sure that he had secured for himself eternal life. And you know the story well that Jesus told in response to that, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the lawyer thinks he's doing pretty good until the very end of the story when Jesus asks him a question, Luke 10, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, Jesus turned it from the question that he originally asked about who is my neighbor to whose neighbor am I? And there's a big difference. To ask who is my neighbor is, is to ask and to focus on, on what claim other people have on my time and my energy and my resources. But to ask whose neighbor am I means I've got to look at the suffering and the, and the, the poverty around me. And let's be honest, it's impossible to measure up to the teaching of this parable. If the ultimate requirement is that each of us must perform to attain eternal life, then we're all damned to hell. Let's just be honest. What do I owe those suffering around me? Probably more than I am willing to give. The parable of the Good Samaritan was meant to be an awful story because it pictures us as being self-righteous, because we think we're doing enough and, and we're good enough. And until we see 
how self-righteous we are, we will not be ready to hear the message of grace. And so we began by looking at the heart, our heart. And this series was not going to be about making sure that we measure up to the standards of God. This series was about making sure that we discover another important facet about the heart of God. What is it that breaks the heart of God? And Jesus wanted to bring us to our knees that we might plead for his mercy. There is none righteous, not one, when we ask, whose neighbor am I? So it was important for me as we launched then after that to sense the whole counsel of God. So we looked back at an Old Testament text and we looked at a New Testament text to see, is this, this concept flowing through? So we looked in the book of Amos. The book of Amos is not primarily a call to social justice and social action. It's there, clearly he does that. But it isn't a call to full employment but they won't be able to, (laughs) It's not a call for for medical benefits. It's not a call for, for, for truth in sentencing. You see, what Amos is calling us to do is to look at our religion. It's a call to repentance. It is a call to believe once again fully in the sovereignty of God. And from the start, he makes it very clear, Amos 1-2, the Lord roars from Zion, and he thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. The most fertile place in the land, Mount Carmel, it's going to wither the sovereignty of God at work. God is in control of everything. And our God is the same today as he was in the days of Amos. And then Amos moves on. God is sovereign. He is relentless. God will not compromise. God demanded absolute loyalty from Israel. And nothing has changed. Except we know more and we have the witness of a savior. If God demanded from them absolute loyalty, Don't you think he demands from us absolute loyalty? God did not put up with their religious compromise. Do you think he's going to put up with our compromise? An integral part of this relentlessness of God is seen in the book of Amos in God's mercy, in his grace, in his love that calls a people to himself. But how did they respond? They responded with a cold heart. When we hear the call of God, well, how are we going to respond? With a cold religion or a fresh walk with God? You see, again, it's all about the heart. Then we came into the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Oh, I I forgot to put it in my notes. Verse 27. Yikes. 
Now you're going to see how fast Jim can find James. <laughs> Hebrews. Because 27 is kind of the key, you know? I, I know it, but I don't want to miss make it. Religion that God, <laughs> that's kind of ironic, is it not? Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unpolluted by the world. True and pure religion is marked by how you speak. It is marked by how compassionate you are to those in the most dire and, and grief-filled circumstances of life. And how's your character? And I use that text to launch into an application or a journey into biblical perspectives on poverty. Poverty is much more complicated than we assumed. It isn't just the lack of money. You see, biblically, we were created to have relationships with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with creation. And if any of those relationships fails, one of the results is a poverty in life. When you're out of sync, when you're lacking shalom, peace in all four of those relationships, true religion, it needs to step in. And it begins where, verse Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We are a materialistic people. We need to repent from that materialism. We need to see poverty in more relational terms. And what's that going to require? It's going to require true religion. Watch your words. Be moved by compassion when people are in terrible grief and be holy in our behavior. It's going to require us to understand our own brokenness. It's going to require us to embrace the message of the cross in deep, powerful ways. It's going to require us to say when we encounter poverty and injustice, I'm not okay, you're not okay, but Jesus, he can fix us both. And that's the only way we will show true compassion to the suffering. That's how this religion that James talks about will be pure in us and not be fake. And then we spent the last three Sundays in one verse, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And we took one Sunday to unpack each of those, and we started in the back. But what are the three of those? We are supposed to do what? <laughs> act, I got to, now, see, I, I, we, 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 we started in the back, and now I'm going to go to the front. We act, no. we, we, well, you do justice. You act mercy, you love, oh, this has been a powerful sermon series. Mm. You do justice, you, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with our God. It's profound, is it not? <sighs> and we explored them in reverse. We started with walk humbly with your God. God wasn't looking just for more sacrifices and rivers and mountains of animals, but a humble walk with him. And we made just one point of application. We could have gone a lot of different places. But we said we should bathe our ambitions in life with humility. See, walking humbly with God means that we do not have as our ambition seeking that next dollar only, earning that next degree to put on the wall, 
We should seek more than anything else to walk with God. And it very well could mean that there is joy in an unaccomplished life. It could very well mean that there is great happiness in being normal. And perhaps living a normal life is one expression of true religion. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and make this your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we are told. And it all came down to the quote, I've mentioned it several Sundays, Chad Bird, in the end, I could quote from Augustine's Confessions in Latin. Rabbi Oshaya from Bereshit Rabbah, whatever that is, in Hebrew, and Luther's Catechism in German, but I had no clue what my daughter's favorite stuffed animal was. In my accomplishments, I only succeeded to fail in the most important parts of life. Walk humbly with your God. Then we explored what it means to love mercy, and we learned a Hebrew word, hesed, mercy, loving kindness, loyal love. And if we're going to love mercy, what does that mean? And we discovered that when tragedy strikes, there's like three different reactions we need to consider. Relief, rehabilitation, and development. Because normally we hear about the relief and this tragedy strikes and you've got to get in and do relief. But you only do relief for a short amount of time. Because if you do relief when it's really requiring rehabilitation or development, you're going to hurt the people and you're going to hurt yourself. See, mercy isn't just about being nice or about making us feel good. It is a kindness that is extended in our, with our personal cost when we don't have to do it. It's the ability to see the big picture instead of just being focused on the respect and the deference and the treatment we think we deserve because they don't appreciate us. And then we talked about doing justice. We learned two more Hebrew words, tzaddik, righteousness, and mishpat, justice. See, justice is righteousness. You measure justice by the standard of God, not human standards. Because justice is based on the righteousness of God. And injustice is the abuse of power. It is the abuse of authority to take from others the good thing that God has provided. That's injustice. And the world is so full of injustice that we get numb to it. And we're so overwhelmed, we just do nothing. And my plea is that our heart for justice will grow and that trickle that maybe we planted this, this series might become a little stream and eventually a mighty river because the church is called to fight for justice wherever we see injustice. And we said, God, open our eyes to see the world as you see it. Even if it makes me uncomfortable with that vision, especially if it makes me uncomfortable. And then we spent some time last Sunday exploring some opportunities for us to get involved in doing justice. What does that mean? And that brings us to message number seven. Where do we go from here? How do we tie all of this together? We've barely scratched the surface of the concept of true religion. 
But I do not want this to be a series that you take your notes, if you even took them, and you stuff them, shove them in some notebook somewhere and forget all about them. I really hope your home group, your Bible study, whatever, here it is, when helping hurts. There's six sessions. Go through it after the first of the year. Sorry. It deals with poverty alleviation. What's our perspective? But I'm asking this morning, how does this series become transformational for us as a church family? I think 40 Days of Purpose did that for us back in, what, 2002? I think 40 Days of Community did that for us. And I believe that 40 Days of True Religion can be just as transformational, even if it wasn't written by Rick Warren. So let me suggest four things that could, that could bring and launch a revolution in our church. How do we tie this together? Number one, we need to live redemptively. Redemption is a word that comes out of the accounting world. You buy and you sell and you redeem, you buy something. In the Bible, we are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And if you take that concept of redemption back out of the religious realm and bring it into the realm, into the realm of life where we live, what does that mean? Where, it means this, wherever there is loss and brokenness, wherever there is injustice, waste, harm, somebody has to be willing to enter that situation. And when they do, they will bear a cost. Because when you step into brokenness, you risk when you try to help somebody. And sometimes the brokenness is more than just a single person. Sometimes the brokenness is a system. And it needs to be restored or repaired. And when you enter that situation, that is a redemptive action. You're trying to do something positive. But what do we learn about redemption in the Bible? Redemption in the Bible takes some creativity, did it not? And it took some sacrifice, did it not? God had to come up with this plan before the foundation of the world. What am I going to do to redeem my people? Once he figured it out, then what? Well, then somebody had to pay the cost, and the Savior did that. You see, that's the pattern of redemption. It takes some creativity, and it takes some sacrifice. That's the redemptive pattern. Does that pattern describe our lives? Does it describe our choices that we make? Does it describe how I am at work? Does it describe how I lead my family? Does it describe my choices? Does it describe how I'm going to serve the world? You see, this means we have to follow the pattern of redemption that we have in the scriptures. See, God is in the business of creative restoration, and so should we. And there are three ways in which we can operate in this world. All right, here we go. We're digging deep. You got to choose which way you're going to live for the rest of your life. Number one, exploitative. This is the way the world works. You're here to get all you can out of it. 
I'm going to gain my advantage. I'm going to prevail. I'm going to possess as much as I can. The, 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 the exploitative person says, I win, you lose. And the motivating factor is basically self-centered or tribe-centered. My people got to win. Your people got to lose. I'm going to have as much control as I can get. I win. My tribe wins. You lose. Your tribe loses. It says, take all I can get. It says, I win, you lose. It win and be in control. There's another way to live. Ethically. You can live in the ethical plane, which is just do things right. Do no harm. Keep the rules. Play fair. Solve problems. Add value to those around you. It's win-win whenever you can. That's the way you're going to live. And the motivating that factor is that you're just going to be good and do good. We're going to do the right thing. I win, you win. Be good, do good. And we expect that ethical living as Christians of ourselves and for those around us. And yet we sometimes fall short and we're grateful for the forgiveness of God when we do. But there's a third way to live, redemptively, redemptively. See, redemptive way to live follows the biblical pattern set by God. It involves some creative restoration through sacrifice. It's going to seek to bless others. It's going to seek to renew the culture. It's going to seek to give of ourselves. They pursue, I sacrifice, so we can win. They will use the power, we will use our resources to help those who don't have the power or the resources. And the driving motivation is that we are other-centered. We're gonna love and we're gonna serve. And you rarely expect to encounter redemptive way of life here on this planet. Because it says, I sacrifice, so we win. We love, we serve. And if we're going to practice true religion, then in those things which operate and, and take up the most areas of our time, we need to live redemptively. In our families, we live redemptively. With our wives, we live redemptively. It's gonna take some creativity. It's gonna take some sacrifice. But we must follow the biblical example and the pattern of creative restoration in your business. You follow this plan and this model because it took the creativity of God to come up with the plan of salvation before the foundations of the world were laid. And it took the sacrifice for Jesus to make it happen. And it will be no different for us in the workplace. Sacrifice yourself so that we can win. So what are you doing on your job to win redemptively, to live redemptively? Sometimes your business is more of a counseling place than a, than a place to sell stuff. You go to work with the idea, what am I going to do to redeem my time in this place? Because that's gonna change the world in which you live in. Think redemptively. But there's something even more important than anything that I have talked about in this series. 
We've hinted around it, chewed at the edges of it almost every Sunday. But if this, this concept of pure religion is really going to be transformational in our church and in our lives, there is a step that we have to employ at the start of any journey into true religion. And it's a step that you don't just do once, you're going to have to do it a lot. If we're going to deal with poverty and injustice, if we're going to love mercy, if we're going to walk humbly with our God, we need to do this step. Repentance. Repentance. To live redemptively is going to require us to seek repentance. We usually enter the process of helping people with our God complexes very much intact. Aren't we wonderful? Look what we've done in Bombo. We're such good people. And that God complex is very strong and fully mature. So unless we repent, we will, provide, we will be providing resources and material help to the poor rather than walking with the poor. Because that's the true sign of pure religion. And so we need to come alongside people in humble and relational ways as we call upon the king to fix the root causes of the poverty of the situation, whatever it is, of their poverty and ours. Repentance is not a technique we use, not a gimmick to help the poor and the suffering. Repentance is necessary for us to overcome our poverty. And remember that material poverty is a manifestation of deeper brokenness. But the realization is we are all broken. We are all flawed. We are full of pride. We have God complexes and our character is often lacking. So repent. And you've seen it, I've done it a lot of times. How do we define repentance? We're, God's back there and we're doing our own thing. Repentance says what? It says stop what we're doing. Turn around and go back to God, which is true, that's what repentance is all about. But what I'm talking about this morning is where's your heart? Where's this aspect of repentance? that I fall down before God and I rend my heart because of who I am and what I've done. Joel 2 says this, God calls to Israel, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend or tear your hearts, not your garments. In the Old Testament, people expressed great grief and anguish by doing what? They would rip their clothes. But more than caring about a proper sign of repentance, God cared that they actually grieved in their hearts to the point of weeping and mourning. When was the last time you grieved over your sin? When is the last time you wept as you saw injustice in this world? 
When is the last time you wept over the pain experienced by a widow or the harsh realities faced by an orphan? When's the last time you wept because girls have been sold as slaves for sex by their fathers to make a buck? When is the last time you wept because there's people in downtown LA tonight sleeping in tents? I mean, we can go through the motions when it comes to repenting, but the Bible is most very clear. It all depends on the condition of your heart. Does your heart, does, or does your repentance look like a heart that's been torn like a, like, like a, a garment, broken, contrite as it just beats before God? That attitude is often missing from our repentance. But you know what? It's the very thing that God is trying to teach us. In 40 days of true religion, if it's going to have an impact, what has to happen? Repentance. Individual broken hearts before God. But how do you get a broken heart? Might sound like a strange question, but I'm asking it anyway. We need to ask for it. True repentance, like all things, is actually a gift from God. Second Timothy 2, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. There is a sense in which repentance is a, is, is a gift from God. So God, break my heart. Second, we must realize that all sin is relational. It's not performance-based. You see, the more glimpses we have of the glory of God, the more we will mourn when we scorn that glory. See, it is too shallow to view sin as, as just simply a failure of our performance. It is, but it's also a failure of our intimacy with God. If the only grief we experience is a disappointment with our inability to do what is right, then we've, when we haven't realized that when we sin, we have despised God. So David said against you and you only have I sinned. It's relational. David did what was right when he saw his failures in terms of relationship. And when he did, he was grieved, as only you can grieve when you've sinned against someone you love so much. Do you love God enough to weep over your sin? And third, we must understand the nature of God. Sin is not just relational. But you know what? That sin is relational against God. The more we see of his glory and his holiness, the more we see our sin and our pride and our materialism as something we should weep over. You see, repentance is less about feeling bad over our behavior and more about feeling awe and delight in the holiness of God the more glimpses we can get of his glory, the more we will mourn and scorn our sin.
God desires a broken-hearted people who have learned to mourn over injustice, over suffering. So if we're going to change, repentance is something we must do over and over and over again. Will you plead with God over the next month? That's Christmas, maybe January. I don't know. Maybe we should do that in January. Ask God what breaks your heart. What is it that when God looks and experiences the planet, that it breaks his heart? God, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Find out what God is doing in our, in our world. Take it to God. Because you know what it all comes down to? The heart. Seek repentance. Third, in, we won't spend a lot of time. Discover your passion. What do you really care about? We're all going to have issues which touch our hearts. We need to give each other the freedom to explore those issues. What captivates us? For some, it's going to be caring for seniors. For others, it's the trafficking of women. For others, it's going to be abortion or orphans or refuse or battered wives or racism or housing or literacy or drug addiction or foster children or adoption. God, help me to understand my passion and realize my passion might not be your passion. Your passion might not be my passion. We've all been given spiritual gifts and sensitivities. We've all have a history out of which we draw that we can serve and minister to other people. We have this unique experience of life that's going to shape how we explore true religion in this world. Don't make me fit into your mold and I won't make you fit into mine. I'll try not to anyway. But find your passion and run with it. And fourth, encounter a fresh vision of Jesus. I think too often we've put him in our little box. We've walked with him for so long, we forget who he really is. And we have turned Jesus into Star Trek Jesus. He beams our soul up out of this world. Do it and get me out of here. I can't handle it. I just want to be gone and with you. Why? Because we think this world is a world in which he is fundamentally disinterested. So just take me out of it. You don't really care. This seems like a world from which he is fundamentally disconnected. So why can't I be disconnected too? Star Trek Jesus has nothing to do with our daily human existence. That Jesus... He's promised to take us out of here, to transport us. But only our souls, that's what we think, get us up there, we'll get some kind of container and we'll, for our body or our soul and we'll be good. And we'll be in some disembodied, new, non-human existence called heaven. And that existence, quite frankly, doesn't sound all that appealing to us. Because we're humans. And we can only imagine what it's like to be human. And we've forgotten the Jesus of a text like Colossians 1 with a high, exalted view of the Savior. 
You can close your eyes and listen. I'm going to read a portion of Colossians 1. Verse 15, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And it goes on. You see, here's a picture of a Jesus, not just going to beam us out of here, but of a Jesus who is a creator, who is the sustainer, who is the reconciler of all things. The king whose kingdom is wiping out all of our diseases, who is solving all the issues of our poverty, And the Jesus of Colossians 1 doesn't ask us to stop being human in this world or the next. Instead, he cares about our bodies. He cares about our souls. And he cares about the entire world that those bodies and souls are experiencing. And he cares about what happens in it. You see, Jesus is not some disinterested party. No, we better get on board with what he is doing. And we who have been blessed with material resources, there is good news in this series for us as we begin to take the first steps in helping the poor, helping those in need of justice. If we'll just repent of our modern worldview, that's what we need. And as we do that, you know what we are going to discover? That which we've always known we've needed, but we never put our finger on it. We will discover a solution to our own deepest hunger. The Jesus of Colossians 1. The king who is connected to our world. The king who heals our diseases. The king who reconciles us to God, to ourselves, to other people and to the rest of creation. He's the king who can make both you and those poor people too truly human again. Because in this fallen world, we are all beggars. We are all homeless. We're all longing like the prodigal son for what? A feast. A banquet to which all of our physical needs are fully satisfied and all of our relationships are fully restored. It's a banquet in which we experience all that it means to be human for the very first time. And we beggars can, call, can all come to that wonderful feast not because of our material resources, not because of our spirit, superior technology which are gods of our modern world 
but by embracing the Jesus of Colossians 1, the master of the only banquet that can truly satisfy. Where's our hope? Isaiah put it this way, Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. He has indeed. Will we listen? Because it's all about the heart. Let's pray. Father, may your word transform our hearts. May we listen to it. May we examine how we're living with ourselves, with others, in relation to this world. And Father, I pray that over the next period of time, we might all come before you and just say, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Open our eyes to the injustice and the poverty and the pain of this world that we might, in the midst of it, live redemptively with creativity and sacrifice as the sacrifice, as the, as the example we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.